It's worth noting that the Iraq Prime Minister Academy has taken some symbolic and practical measures to rein in the PMF and assert state sovereignty, including several temporary detention of militia leaders and personnel last year. Hello and welcome to the USERF Spotlight podcast, a weekly podcast series by the United States Commission on International Religious Freedom, where we take a deep dive into religious freedom conditions around the world, breaking the situation down for you. Each week, we focus on a different country, region, or topic. Not only do we analyze and explain the religious freedom situation to our listeners, but we also make policy recommendations to the United States government in order to address the immense challenges we bring to light here. Now here is the host of our show, USERF Director of Outreach and Policy, Dwight Bashir, to lead today's discussion. Welcome to USERF Spotlight. For some two decades, USERF has closely followed the range of religious freedom challenges facing religious and ethnic minorities in Iraq. This is a country that has toiled through a sectarian-fueled civil war in the 2000s that led among many other horrific uh, consequences to the flight of a significant portion of its Christian population and other small religious groups. And the minority communities of its Northern region suffered the brunt of atrocities under ISIS between 2014 and 2019, including what the United States uh, government in 2016 formally declared as a genocide against Yazidis, Christians, and Shia Muslims. The United States has played a leading role in supporting these vulnerable communities who suffered under ISIS, including significant work to rebuild and rehabilitate their cities, towns, and villages. And yet, as Yusuf has consistently reported in recent years, the full ability of those communities to return to their homes and live in peace and safety remains elusive for many. Today, we're fortunate to have with us USERF Chair Nadine Mayenza, who traveled in her personal capacity to Iraq last month, and Jeremy Barker, Senior Program Officer and Director of the Middle East Action Team for the Religious Freedom Institute, to discuss the current state of religious freedom, in particular for Iraq's beleaguered religious minority communities. And Jeremy joins us from Erbil in northern Iraq. Chair Mayenza, Jeremy, thank you for joining me today on USERF Spotlight. Great to be here. Yeah, a privilege to be with you. Thank you uh, again. To get us started, uh, Chair Mayenza, can you tell our audience what are some of the most serious uh, religious freedom challenges that USERF has been uh, following in northern Iraq in recent years? Yeah, sure. So, so vulnerable religious and ethnic minorities have continued to face immense challenges in healing from the scars of ISIS and returning safely to their homes from IDP camps and refugee camps. Of the groups targeted by ISIS for genocide, Christians have had the most success in leaving IDP camps. Some 60% have returned to their home communities, but the others have simply left the country, adding to the hundreds of thousands unlikely to return. Most of the over 200,000 Yazidis who are still displaced live in IDP camps seven years after the ISIS genocide. There are children born here that have never lived in a real building. USAID and other international partners have invested considerable efforts to rebuild homes and infrastructure in the Yazidi heartland of Sinjar. However, the lack of a local economy, periodic Turkish airstrikes there, and in Dohuk, and really no, that have no regard for civilian safety, and the ongoing presence of the popular mobilization forces in the area have continued to prevent most Yazidis, who ISIS literally tried to eradicate from existence, from returning home. 
And of course, we need to highlight that the majority of those still displaced in IDP camps are Sunni Muslim Arabs who are still unable to return home. We should highlight here as well, Dwight, the corrosive role of the Popular Mobilization Forces or the PMF. With their salaries paid by the Iraqi government, they're actually backed and loyal to Iran, operating with impunity. These militias operating under the PMF umbrella have continued to commit heinous crimes against religious and ethnic minority groups or components as they prefer to call themselves. For example, the PMF militias run countless checkpoints on major and minor routes across most of Northern Iraq, at which they demand returning IDPs and refugees pay excessive amounts of money to cross or risk being sent back to the camps. When I visited the Nineveh Plains a few years ago, I had to pass through 11 checkpoints on my trip from Erbil to Mosul. These groups particularly single out Sunni Arab Muslims by accusing them of affiliating with ISIS and frequently accost Yazidis, Christians, and others at these checkpoints and in other ways. Jeremy, not only have you followed these uh, challenging circumstances uh, on the ground for a long time, but as I mentioned earlier, you're based in Erbil. And now from your perspective, how has the situation uh, for religious and ethnic minorities in, in Northern Iraq evolved? Yeah, so as uh, Chair Manza just mentioned, for many of the IDP communities that were displaced, uh, particularly in the summer of 2014, only a fraction have been able to return back home. Um, and that's been especially true for, um, for the, many of these minority communities, such as the Yazidis, which only make up 1% to 2% of the total population, and yet make up more than 20% of those who are still displaced. And so, there, those communities are still suffering from the challenges of prolonged displacement. Now going into their eighth year, many of them still living either in, um, in formal camps um, with a dwindling amount of services where you've seen um, fires break out in those camps um, because of the deterioration or others that are either in informal settlements or trying to, to pay for rent, but with um, economic resources depleted. So you have issues of prolonged displacement, and then the inability to go back is exposing many of the systemic marginalization and exclusion that these communities have faced even prior to ISIS. Those um, political and social and, um, and security challenges are continuing to impact these communities even still far beyond um, the most acute threats that they faced in 2014. Jeremy, how about you? During your recent travels in northern Iraq, can you share some of what you observed specifically during your time in the KRG and how, how had circumstances changed since your previous visit? Well, with so many religious minorities still displaced, there's a real sense of gloom for the future. They feel forgotten. And um, I stand with my colleagues at USERF who continue to raise their plight and make recommendations to the US government to provide further support. And I appreciate Jeremy and all the other organizations that, that are continue to, to focus on these communities. Some encouraging news occurred in October when the KRG designated Ankawa, the Christian suburb of Erbil, a district. So this giving them greater autonomy in providing services, overseeing elections and security matters. Yazidis in Sinjar and Syriac, Assyrian, Chaldean Christians in the Nidoa Plains would like to also have more autonomy in overseeing their homelands, especially in regards to providing services and security. Um, and I think it's important to note that the Kurdistan regional government continues to provide a safe place for religious minorities and allow them to practice their faith, despite the fact that the Iraqi government refuses to give their share of portion of the budget in a timely matter that just adds to the financial stress and the economy in the area. 
Jeremy, how would you describe the situation for the same minority communities, you know, who temporarily or permanently reside in, in the KRG territory? Do they find improved conditions or are, are they receiving better representation under the KRG? And are, are there areas in which they face uh, ongoing and significant challenges? Yeah, I think it, it is important to acknowledge that for, um, for many communities, um, certainly the acute violence around 2014, 15, but even during sectarian, waves of sectarian violence before that, many um, uh, religious minority communities and others fled into the Kurdistan region to find greater safety and stability. And it has been um, able to offer that for a wide diversity of religious communities. And um, in, in an encouraging way, there is a, a formal representation um, for many of Iraq's even smallest religious communities, such as the Sabian Mendian or Kakai, um, that are formally represented in the middle in the Ministry of Religious Affairs, even a community such as the Baha'i that are formally um, outlawed in federal Iraq have formal representation within the Ministry of Religious Affairs. Um, so that is is very important. There certainly are challenges with regards to elements of a shrinking civil society space that that do affect. Um, religious minorities and others at times within the Kurdistan region, um, but in large part there there is a very encouraging level of respect for and protection of religious freedom here within the Kurdistan region. Well, that's always good news. Both of you are pointing to the fact that there is some encouraging developments uh, in recent uh, years here, despite the challenges. And, and Chair Manza, I want to go back to you to your earlier point about uh, the challenges that the Iranian-backed uh, PMF groups have posed to vulnerable minorities, perhaps one of the biggest challenges looking ahead. Uh, how has the United States uh, government responded? Sure. Beginning in July um, 2019, and again as recently in January 2021, the U.S. government imposed global Magnitsky sanctions on several leading figures within the PMF among other human rights and religious freedom violators. Those sanctions have included Falah al-Fayed, the PMF chairman and Iraq's former national security advisor in early 2021, and Rayan al-Khadani, he's head of the PMF's 50th Babylon Brigade, and that was done in 2019. His militia has played a particularly insidious role in making life difficult for minority communities attempting to resume their lives in the Nineveh Plains. Unfortunately, he continues to gain power and several of his people um, won seats that were set aside for Christians in parliament this past October. You know, the United States has also taken more direct measures against the PMF leadership. We all remember the drone strike in January 2020 that killed the PMF deputy chair and head of one of the most powerful militias, Mohandas, and of course, Iran's highly influential IRGC commander, Qasem Soleimani. It's worth noting that the Iraq Prime Minister Academy has taken some symbolic and practical measures to rein in the PMF and assert state sovereignty, including several temporary detention of militia leaders and personnel last year. Such measures resulted in pushback from the PMF, a sure sign that he's doing something right. In fact, the drone attack on his residence in November has been largely blamed on PMF factions, although its leadership has denied culpability. Well, let me pose my final question then to both of you, and we'll stay with uh, Chair Mayenza for this one. What would you consider uh, some of the top line action items uh, that the U.S. government uh, should take at this point to support uh, religious and ethnic minorities in Iraq going forward? 
So USURF, in fact, has made some important recommendations in this regard, Dwight, and I'd like to mention just a few of them here. First, the U.S. should use every possible means to settle the disputed areas between the Iraqi federal government and the KRG. As this um, disputed territory really complicates the allocation of necessary resources and protection for all the religious minorities living in this space. And they could do this in Sinjar by implementing the Sinjar Security Agreement, but only if they include the Yazidi community in every aspect. Um, the exclusion of their involvement in the creation and the planned implementation of the um, Sinjar Agreement has been a real problem. Second, given the targeted sanctions have already made a difference in the Iraqi context, the US government should levy further sanctions on PMF leaders who are engaging in or enabling religious freedom and other human rights violations by freezing their assets and barring their entry into the United States. And finally, it's imperative that the US continue to assist religious and ethnic minorities in rebuilding their communities and in advocating for their own interests. That latter point should include opening a broad discussion on governance, to hold fair and free local and regional elections so that these communities can pick their own representation, their own leaders. For instance, Sinjar has not voted for their own leaders since 2003. This issue of governance and representation is essential to give those communities a direct say and indeed a future in their homelands. Indeed. Uh, Jeremy, why don't I turn over to you to give some of your uh, thoughts on this issue? Yeah, um, I would echo many of the points that uh, Nadine just mentioned. And for the United States, it's important, even as the um, security posture here in Iraq has shifted, um, it really is vital that the U.S. be seen as a reliable and stable partner with the Iraqi people, that there's not the, um, the emergence of a security vacuum and a sectarian political environment, as we saw after 2011, that so the seeds for the rise of ISIS before. And so for the U.S. to remain engaged um, in supporting the Iraqi people in the development of a representative governance that um, protects the rights of all Iraqis will be vital. Um, the disputed territories that Nadine mentioned is a vital issue. And we saw the, the impact of those issues not being addressed um, resulted in many of the areas hit hardest by ISIS and, and other security actors were those disputed territories, which are the historic homelands of many of these communities who've been living there for thousands of years. And the marginalization that they had faced led directly to their um, increased vulnerability. Um, and the third would be to, to in, increase the, the non-military assistance investment in educational, cultural uh, programming, um, restoration and protection of Iraq's religious and cultural heritage sites has a very vital role to encourage um, not only the preservation of the past of these communities, but also to maintain a vital, uh, a vibrant future for, for even Iraq's smallest uh, remaining communities. And the US has an important role to play in, in that regard. Well, thank you uh, so much. Some uh, real food for thought here and some uh, Great ideas as we look forward to further encouraging news. Thank you for, for to both of you providing uh, this update on developments in Iraq. Again, I'd like to thank USERF Chair Nadine Mayenza and uh, Jeremy Barker of the Religious Freedom Institute for joining us today. You can find USERF's reporting on Iraq, including our latest policy recommendations on our website. As always, thanks for tuning in today and we'll see you next time on USERF Spotlight. To learn more about USERF and about global religious freedom concerns, 
visit usurf.gov. That's U-S-C-I-R-F dot gov. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at U-S-C-I-R-F. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week for another Usurf Spotlight.